Welcome to episode 271 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome to another episode. And I think this is going to be a really good one. We got uh, the last couple episodes have been not too design heavy, uh, mostly in stuff that kind of uh, orbits around the design world and industry. But this time, we're going to dive deep on some real heady design topics, like practical, real, real world shit. Nitty gritty things you can implement today. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. But first... First up, our sponsor is uh, The Spec Network. We are a podcast that is part of The Spec Network. The Spec Network is uh, a host for podcasts and, and content for designers and developers just like you. Uh, the website is spec.fm. And we recently launched a job board on The Spec Network uh, to help designers and developers find jobs, as well as to help companies that are looking for designers and developers to help them get in front of people who listen to these shows. So if you go to spec.fm slash jobs, uh, we've got a few listings up there. And if your company is looking to hire, our rates right now are pretty affordable. So uh, I think it's $100 for 30 days to have your yeah, that's a good deal. listing on, on the SpecFM website. Uh, we actually just had a new listing added this week for a communications designer, uh, a remote gig at Kamut. I don't know exactly what that is, but uh, you can dig into that and, and see what the opportunity is. That's at spec.fm slash jobs. And if your company's hiring, uh, we'd love to help spread the word. So Go to spec.fm slash jobs or just check out uh, the other shows on the spec network. Cool. That's all for sponsors this week. Easy. All right. Quick and easy. Let's get into some follow-up, Brian. I think this yeah. is going to be quick and easy too. Yeah. So last episode, we continued talking about the uh, Morgan Knudsen Google Plus tweet storm thing. And, and we used that to talk about, what did we talk about? Negotiation, <laughs> salaries. That was, I think, the first Actually, episode. Two episodes ago, yeah. That was two ago. And then, then last week, we talked about burning bridges. We talked about the nature of our industry being small and what it feels like to sort of air dirty laundry in public as a designer, especially one who's who's fairly well known. Yeah. One of the things we were talking about after the show that I wanted to bring up was, as far as burning bridges goes, like when you have a job in this industry, typically you'll still get recruiter emails pretty regularly even if you're happy at your job and you can always ignore those. Like I think a lot of people just ignore those, but in order to avoid burning bridges, like to go above and beyond to not burn bridges, I almost always reply to them. If only with some basically boilerplate kind of thing where I, I, I say something to the effect of, I appreciate you reaching out to me. Thanks so much for thinking of me. I'm currently very happy right now, but if that changes, I'll keep you in mind and hopefully you'll do the same, which I think is a good practice to be in. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about it. I feel the same way. I think what happened after we recorded last week is you or I ha had seen a recruiter email and we ended up sort of serendipitously having that same boilerplate. Because you say the same thing, right? I say the exact same thing. The, the thing I'd add here is I think if you're 100% for sure, never ever in a million years going to work at that company, it's probably fine to ignore it. But I think there is a pretty big advantage and a strategy behind replying to recruiter emails because they don't really give a shit. They don't mm -hmm. care either way. But what happens is if you reply and you're polite and you say, thanks for thinking of me, not now, can we follow up? All they do is they they snooze your email for three months, for six months or whatever, and then they forget about you. And then six months later, this this reminder pops up that says, just follow up. And they have a canned response follow up. So it takes them two seconds this is all very automatic, I assume, for most recruiters. But So it's just boilerplate on both sides. It's boilerplate on both sides. Here's why it's strategic, in, in my opinion, is you never know what's going to happen with your current job. You never know when you're going to get bored. You never know when you're going to change. You just never know. So why wouldn't you want to have an inbound 
job lead pipeline that you basically automated like yep. a, as a result of having taken the two seconds to reply to these things. And I've actually found in my experience that recruiters are pretty damn consistent with following up. If you say, I'm happy now, but let's follow up in a year. Lo and behold, a year later, they're reaching back out and, and you can just extend that indefinitely. They don't care. Uh, they're just doing their job. So yeah, they're not offended. If you say no, yeah. they're not offended. Or if you say not right now, especially they're not offended. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's okay to get over this. Like it's it's a corny boilerplate back and forth because the end result is you know a year down the road you have this inbound pipeline that you don't have to worry about and and it, it costs you zero to negligible amounts of time to to maintain that. So seems like a no brainer to me. But yeah, I thought that was an interesting thing to to bring up because that's something I don't think we've ever talked about on the show before. But uh, it's a a good practice to get into just keep the pike full of new things coming down yeah. just in case something happens you get laid off there's you know and any number of things could happen and it's nice to have irons in the fire as it were yeah and I think we could also bracket this with you don't need to respond to the obviously shit recruiter emails. I, I was reading on Twitter right. someone got a recruiter email and they like CC'd her on an email where the one of the executives at the company was asking if oh is that your real name or is that a porn star name and that Oh, that's her real name. And the recruiter CC'd her into that thread asking like, hey, can you confirm your real name? Ugh. So obviously don't respond to those. It's not worth your yeah. time. Um, <laughs> I think everyone has a little common sense there. but Yeah, there's also the ones where it's like, I was looking through portfolios and I came across your site and like, bullshit, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Anyone can sniff that out. Like, Even if it's canned, they'll usually say like, hey, I, I saw you had a, a cool thing that you shipped at this company and then yeah cue, cue the rest of the boilerplate right i feel like there's a social contract in both directions so when you write your cv like your resume when you when you put that together you should customize it for the company that you're interviewing at so they feel special and i feel like the same thing is should be true in the other direction of like if you're going to reach out to me like take the effort to get to know what i've worked on otherwise it feels like you don't know who i am you don't know that i'm good or that i'd be good for your team i'm just I'm just a person out here who is available. Right, right. Or maybe not not even available, right? Right, exactly. I don't know. It's, a, yeah. it's offensive to me. But I think for the most part, especially if they're customizing it for you, always reach back. Always say thank you, no thank you, if it is a no. It does feel like, canned or not, it is a nice thing to say thank you to because in some way you are noticed. I don't know. Maybe that's like a, everyone has different values here on, on what they say thank you for. But like you're getting someone that's trying to give you a job as like an inbound email. That, that's pretty cool. Yeah, just common courtesy. Yeah, that seems like a, a polite thing to do is just say thank you. Maybe we're uh, being a little patronizing to people who, who think this is very obvious. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think the underlying context was uh, these are obvious bridges that that you can sort of start to build with with minimal effort and you never really have to burn them because there's no reason to, right? Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, one of the things since I joined the show that I've, I've come to realize is that there are a lot of junior designers who listen to this show, either who have just gotten into the industry or trying to get into the industry or are just interested in the topic in general and want to hear about it. So I think it's important to talk about some of these more basic things just because I think there's a larger audience that would appreciate them and the people who already know this stuff will, I don't think will mind too much hearing it again because we're confirming for them that what they're doing is correct right yeah yeah cool so that's follow up you want to uh, we can quickly cover a bit of news this week we saw an interesting tweet from mg sigler he was previewing a, a feature that twitter is testing out right now called statuses or presence indicators or icebreakers and we, we had a, another example this a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, actually, at this point, uh, where Twitter was sort of testing ideas like this out in public or sharing designs of things that they wanted to build. 
anyways, I just think this is an interesting idea that seems newsworthy. It's um, a status that you can attach to your Twitter profile that would be great for, you know, when you're traveling or, or you're at a conference. I think the behavior that has been noticed is people update their Twitter display name to say Brian Levin at XOXO or yeah. uh, so-and-so at ReactCon for whatever. Uh, yeah. So how can you productize that and then basically use that as a mechanism for discovery or for filtering for both yourself and for other people, right? So if you say your status is at XOXO, maybe there's heightened discovery mechanisms for other people also at XOXO and and perhaps filtering vice versa for people who are sick of hearing about XOXO. You can filter out people who have that status. Do you have any gut reactions to this? Uh, these screenshots, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of what we talked about last episode, which this is, this is an X, right? Like, this is a hammer. This is a yeah, thing that's yeah. good. It can be used for, for good of like connecting with other people and letting people know what you're up to and making new relationships. It can also be really bad if someone's trying to break into your house and they know for sure that you are not at home right now. Oh, boy. <laughs> Which is why I never update my Twitter status to let people know my, my traveling schedule. I usually don't even tweet while I'm traveling so that, I don't know, maybe I'm paranoid on this kind of and stuff. You but... said you weren't paranoid yeah. last week. Marshall, this is, ne- this is next level. Wow. I mean, it's basically, it's saying to everyone on the internet, hey, I'm not home. I'm not home, yeah. My house is free reign. Go for it. Yeah, but that's just polite, you know. <laughs> you don't want the robbers to be startled if you're actually home. Yeah, common courtesy. Just like the reply emails. Uh-huh. Uh, no, I think this is kind of cool. I mean, a lot of like chat apps have this thing. I, I feel like the average user updates this once when the feature is announced and it's new and they get a prompt for it with a tooltip or something like that. They update it once and then they forget about it and then they never do it again. And then it becomes stale and useless. I feel like there's this nostalgia for the AIM status that everyone's trying to recreate because that was such a core component of social interaction for a certain generation at a certain period of time. I know that certainly existed when I was in middle school, the the aim away status or the, the whatever yeah. your status period was, was like a huge way of communicating with people. And, you know, we've seen Slack introduce statuses and I saw comments on this tweet like, oh, Twitter's just trying to recreate Slack, which I think was a dumb comment, but I think it's at the point that there seems to be this element missing of this like status indicator for you that is passive and persists across like the next posts that you create for a certain given period of time, which, you know, you could argue Twitter tweets themselves are, are status updates, but they don't persist over time or that you can't encapsulate them with a certain context in the same way that a status message kind of does. So I don't know. I think it's interesting, but I, I definitely agree with the backside of this axe here is it could be dangerous for people. Yeah. In general, I think that presence, aside from, say, uh, a chat app of letting me know that the person has been active within the last number of minutes so that they're more likely to reply if I if I text them, right? I think that's super useful. I think there are other presence things like for example, Spotify lets people know what you're what you're currently listening to, which I think that's useful too cuz you can kind of check in on your friends, but it's not it's not well, it's opt-in first and yeah. the information you're sharing isn't destructive in any way or potentially dangerous. It's just like it helps people, but this is potentially dangerous. I'm a little leery and I probably wouldn't use it cuz and maybe I was just channeling myself when I said people will update it once and forget about it cuz I know that's what I will do. <laughs> And everyone else is just like me. Yeah, of course. Is that not true? That's a dangerous thing to say. <laughs> Hope that doesn't get taken out of context. Please don't splice this episode. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I, I don't know. I, th- I think it's an interesting idea. Like, basically, I just won't use it, right? But if people are clamoring for it, and if it's something that people are asking for, I don't see why it would be a bad thing, I guess, as long as you're right. discerning with how you use it. Right, cool. Well, I guess we'll see what happens there, and, and if things actually end up shipping, we can talk about it more in the future and see what ends up becoming of it. Yep. Other quick bit of news, this is just sort of a small self-plug, but we recently added a, a new feature to the SpecFM website. Uh, I'm calling it the global player because I can't think of a better name for it. But anyways, you should check it out. So if you go to spec.fm and click into a, a podcast or go to a show notes view, I uh, added a new play button. And what it does when you click play uh, is it pops up this little global player in the bottom left corner. And the problem that I was trying to solve here is I think I experienced this several times just going through the SpecFM website and trying to listen back to an episode is you forget that the audio is coming from this one page. And so you kind of click around like, oh, while I'm listening, why don't I check out the jobs page? And you click away and you've lost all the audio and your progress. And then you click back and you have to re-scrub through. So for anyone who listens to audio on the web, this is sort of a pervasive problem. So anyways, the global player is just trying to solve that where you can start listening to any episode and then continue browsing anywhere else on the site. And if you find a different episode you want to listen to, you can sort of interrupt that queue and and start a new one. But the idea is if you're listening to this podcast on a web browser, hopefully that experience can be a little bit better and and give you some freedom to like move about the room while you're listening. So I hope it's working well. Uh, let's get into a, a listener question here. So we regularly reach out and say, does anybody have any questions they'd like us to answer on the show? And we sift through those and, and pick ones that we think will be good to answer and useful for our listeners to hear. So the one that we chose for this episode is from, I'm going to butcher the name, Dimitri Veremchuk. Seems like you did a good job there. Yeah, okay. D underscore V-E-R on Twitter. He asks, I'm going to assume Dimitri is a he. But uh, they ask, is there a limit to the number of side projects one takes on? Which is a good question. Because personally, I am interested in animation, video editing, illustration, programming, photography, and many more things. This is a renaissance man. Starting projects in all these fields would be uh, daunting and of a low quality. Thoughts, Brian? When I started reading the tweet, my answer was, no, there's, there's no limit to the number of side projects you should take on because... If you're interested in these things, you should explore them and figure out what interests are deeper than others. Where, And, and fuck, it's all just about having fun, in my opinion, with, with side projects. So if you want to illustrate one day and then code something the next day and then go take photos the next day, why not? As long as you feel satisfied in doing that. But I think the last bit of the question is sort of this hook, which is, you know, if I do this, does that just mean I'm stuck being mediocre at all these things? And And that resonated quite a lot with me because I feel as though I am very much a generalist and as a result I'm okay at a lot of things but I'm not really really good. Jack of all trades, master of none. Exactly. So I think that for me my response to this is it depends on your value system. Like do you really value expertise in a field? Do you value variety in your life? And for me those are things that I value. I find it fun. I I find being able to at least be like average or intermediate at at several different things to be quite quite rewarding. So for me, that would be like programming and and design, certainly at this point. And then I guess I can't speak to too many other like non-tech side projects, but being okay at both of those things feels good. And I think it gives you flexibility, especially if you're navigating early on in your career, like you can have 
more open-ended conversations with recruiters, with hiring managers and say things like, hey, I know this is the role, but I also do these other things on the side. Is there any way I can sort of bake that into to my role to grow those skills as well? And I've seen that happen and it's happened for me. And I, th- I think that's a really good thing as long as you have a foundation there. So yeah, what, what do you think, Marshall? I, I agree. I don't think there's a limit, but I think the question you have to ask yourself is, do I want to ship all of these things or is this just practice? Right. Because I work on a ton of different side project stuff and I never ship any of it, but it's just it's just good to, you know, work off the work those muscles and make sure that you're keeping up your skills in a certain thing or grow your skills in a certain thing. Sometimes that can be attached to like launching a little plugin or a little app or something fun. But for the most part, if you're if you're just doing it for fun and you're just doing it to grow the skill, it shouldn't be daunting because there's no timeline attached and there's nobody who's going to see it except for yourself. So your only competition is you, right? Uh, or the old you. And I think that's usually one of the most healthy ways to grow is to just be better than you were yesterday, right? I think the shipping argument is interesting as well because in order to ship something, I feel as though there's a certain amount of bullshit that you're going to have to wade through that is not the sort of fun and sexy part of the thing. So f- for me... Mm-hmm. That, that last 10%? Yeah, the last 10%, I think, determines whether or not you actually want to do that that activity. And for me, photography stands out as one of those things where I loved being behind a camera and taking photos and finding cool spots and you know taking hikes and getting great views and doing all this stuff. But the last whatever percentage you want to call it of plugging it your uh, camera into your computer, organizing them on, on your disk, editing them and then publishing them and hoping for some sense of validation like, oh, I hate that so much. And so I just stopped. I, I really just stopped taking photos or well, I take photos on my phone, but I, I don't give a shit about if they're perfectly framed or anything like that. Because I I just enjoy that one specific piece of it. I think for other people, it might be, this might resonate for like a programming perspective is I like the programming to make it work on my computer. But then when it comes to deploying it and scaling it and making it live and work for other people, that kind of sucks for (laughs) a lot of people. There's just a lot of other shit you have to learn to get over those sort of hurdles. And probably, you know, we can come up with parallels as well for for design and cooking and anything else, right? I love cooking, but I hate doing dishes. Yeah, you raised a really good point there, the the validation aspect of it. Like, I'm of the mind that if you're doing anything for validation, you're probably in it for the wrong reasons. Like you should be doing it for yourself. If you're doing it for other people, like you're probably going to be less happy with whatever you do. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think what I meant by the validation was, am I able to get feedback on if this is good or not? Like, I think it's one thing to be proud of your own work, but it's another to be proud of it and then have someone that you respect say, it's good, but here's one thing you could do better. Or it's just good. Like, you know, that's not the reason you did it, but the validation is... uh, either encouragement to continue working to be better or an acknowledgement that you're on the right track. And I think that is useful, especially for someone early on. Like if you're just getting into photography or cooking, like does this look good? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess feedback is different from validation in my mind, but yeah, I I agree. Okay. Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. Bad word choice on my part then. Validation would be like fake internet points, right? Did I get more likes on Instagram this time than last time? Yeah. If I tweet something and I think it's a really, really good tweet and it doesn't get a lot of likes, I'm kind of sad a little bit, you know? It's like, ah, <laughs> oh, I thought that was a I'm good not one. Funny. I think if you have the mindset of like, I'm just putting this thing out into the world. If I get feedback, cool. If not, whatever, I'll just keep growing. Then I think that's usually a good mindset. You won't be as disappointed because people don't give a fuck about you on the internet. That's a good rule of thumb. Yeah. 
And speaking of rules of thumb, that's a that's a good segue into the the meat of the episode. So a while ago, we mentioned Fitzlaw. I mentioned Fitzlaw towards the end of an episode, if you made it that long, and explained it for Brian. And we decided to do more of these kind of principles of design as a whole topic for this episode. So we're going to go through some of the things we think about when we are designing and the kind of general ideas we keep in mind and that hopefully make it into the DNA of our designs so that they are robust and bulletproof when it comes to a lot of these weird edge cases of how how the human brain works and holes that you can dig yourself unintentionally. In my research to document all of the things that I keep in mind, I was like, well, I'm sure there's some other things out there I should I should uh, I should look around. And in my looking around, I found a site called lawsofux.com. It's made by John Yablonski. Uh, John's made lots of good sites. I, I looked through his yeah. portfolio, his personal site. He made a website called Webfield Manual. Like All of his stuff looks good, so well done. It's a collection. I'm not sure if it's growing or not, if he's still updating it, but it is a collection of currently 19 design principles. Some of them are a little bit duplicative, but for the most part, these are all Really, really useful, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of skim through them. So yeah, so so Fitzlaw says the time to acquire a target is a function of the distance to and size of the target, which breaks down to basically the bigger something is and the closer something is, the easier it is to click on or tap on, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is a great rule for accessibility and for one hand use. Bottom tab bars. Yeah, bottom tabs. So there was a post by Luke Robluski uh, a long time ago. I think I think it's just a Twitter post with a with a picture, but it's very illustrative of how your reach works on the phone. So uh, if you're holding the phone with one hand, which most people do if they're not typing, there's a couple different configurations of how you can hold your hand. But given those configurations, there are things we can say about whether an area on the screen is easy to tap or hard to tap or somewhere in the middle. Right. Mm-hmm. And despite phones growing and becoming much, much larger in the form of phablets and everything, the principle is basically the same, which says anything on the bottom screen is easy to hit because that's where your thumb is near. And anything near the top of the screen is really hard. Unless you have gigantor hands, you're probably going to be reaching and reaching is no fun for anybody. So the way I break this rule down for my personal use is if I have an action that needs to be high priority and easily tapped by the user, it should appear in a bottom square on the phone. By which I mean, if I draw an angle at 45 degrees up from either corner of uh, bottom corner of the phone, it should land within that square at the bottom of the phone. So it doesn't really matter how wide the device is, just like put a one by one square full width at the bottom of the screen. If your thing, if your CTA doesn't fit in there, then it's probably harder to hit. The the angle of your thumb, you can imagine reaching your thumb from the bottom corner of a, a phone and then sort of extending to try and reach the opposite corner. It's a 45 degree angle with this one little area in the bottom corner, which is perfect for a hit target. So makes sense. This is why action sheets on iOS come up from the bottom. Another important thing to note here is that if you ever pay attention to action sheets, the destructive, if there is any sort of destructive action, it's always the topmost action. Is it always? It's always, yeah. So the red button basically is always on the top, which seems counterintuitive because normally we think of the thing at the top of the list to be the most prominent thing and the one you want users to tap on the most. 
and the thing at the bottom of the list the least likely to be tapped on. But oh, in wow. this case, you want the destructive action to be as far from the thumb as possible so that the person doesn't accidentally delete an email or, or something like that, right? And the, the thing you want them to do most is at the bottom. So this is um, a perfect example of uh, Fitz Law such that the most likely action is closest to the user's thumb. So actually, I want to pay more attention over the next week because I actually didn't realize that it was consistent that deletes are always at the top of action sheets. Um, so I'm kind of tapping around my phone and the Safari, if you long press on the tabs icon in the bottom right, is an example of this. So the, the closed tabs is at the top of the action sheet and the new tab is at the bottom. I feel like I've seen it used inconsistently. So I'd, I'm going to keep an eye on that this week, but TIL anyways. But this also reminds me of the the floating action button in Material. This seems, I feel like the fab is such a controversial design decision, but yeah, this seems to fit within that paradigm of put a a button to create a thing really close to the person's thumb. Well, so here's the thing about that is that um, in Material version one, the fab was always in the bottom right of the screen, which is great if you're right-handed, which is most people. But if you're left-handed, that's a bit of a reach. Reaching to the opposite corner of the screen is pretty tough. And then things pop out of it upwards, and those are even further away from your thumb. Right. So in Material 2, fabs are now generally centered so it doesn't matter whether you're right-handed or left-handed it's just as easy either way I see. which i think is a great choice i guess like one point of inconsistency i just tried the screenshot and if you tap done after you open the screenshot preview delete is on the bottom of the action sheet uh so the destructive action but i'm actually wondering if if that's intentional as well because they expect most people to want to delete a screenshot after they've done it or if it's if this is actually the rule being broken that destructive actions are on the top i think it's a rule being broken because if you go to the hig the apple hig the second rule is make destructive choices prominent use red for buttons that perform destructive or dangerous actions and display these buttons at the top of an action sheet well there you go we caught we we found a hig violation from uh, the operating system itself. Yeah, I think another good example of this is if you have a phone that supports 3D Touch and you 3D Touch onto an app icon on your home screen, depending where that app icon is located, whether it's in the top three rows or the bottom three rows, the little uh, sheet will, will pop out either above or below. So if it's at the top of the screen, it'll pop out below. But regardless of where the sheet pops out, the order of the the actions in that sheet change such that the the first the, the the primary one is closest to the icon. So if it pops up, it will be the bottom one. If it pops down, it will be the top one. Oh, it also works left and right. But yeah, the top and bottom makes a lot of sense. Yep. Yep. I think these are things that you might pick up if you're paying attention, but having them called out specifically kind of clues you into why maybe these things are a little bit easier to use than other things you've used that don't follow this rule. Yep. So that's Fitz Law. And let's keep going. So here's another really good one. Speaking of what I was just talking about, which is Jacob's Law, Jacob with a K. So Jacob's Law basically says your site should work like everybody else's. Um, So a user coming to your site doesn't just use your product. They use a bunch of other products. And if most other products follow a given pattern and you don't, you are the odd person out and your users will have trouble using your product because you're you're breaking a norm. So in this in the same way that you should follow the the destructive action being at the top of action sheets because that's what people expect. If you do something different in your app, you're going to be breaking people's expectations and confusing them and making them angry. So talk to me about your perception here of Jacob's law and how it might interface with someone trying to be creative or try and invent some new 
like input mechanism or some new interface design element where it's new, it's not well known, but perhaps it's really useful. And even though nobody else is doing it, it seems worthwhile to do. It seems like Jacob's Law would go counter to that, but obviously all rules are meant to be broken. So where do you stand here? Yeah, I think there I, th I think there are some really good examples of people breaking the rules in a way that follows user behavior as it already is. So for example, I think kind of the canonical example of this would be pull to refresh. Yeah, yeah. So if you are in an app that loads new content at the top, you will find yourself at the top of the list, pulling past the top of the list to see if there's anything there. Well, guess what? Uh, we can check to see if there are new things there when you pull down. So following your behavior, we will pull to refresh, right? That's something that didn't exist before Tweety and Lauren Brichter created it in, in the Tweety app. It was very early on, but it was one of those things that took Apple a few years to assimilate into their own OS, but now it's standard across the board, right? So if you're at the top of a list that can be refreshed, chances are you'll, you can pull down to refresh it. Even, even uh, Android has this paradigm. So I, I think I don't want to say you shouldn't have, you shouldn't do new patterns. You shouldn't come up with new ways of, of doing things. I think that's a lot of the fun for most designers is like coming up with novel interaction designs. But know that when you do that, you are probably going to confuse a lot of people. And unless it is based on existing behavior and follows from the way users are already using your app, whether they know it or not, it's probably going to be less discoverable. And unless you have really great user education, people probably won't get it or use it or do it. It also seems like this rule or Jacob's law is why people hate parallax scrolling so much on, on the web. Scroll jacking? Scroll jacking. It's like you want your website to be special in the way that my mouse interacts with the content on it, but every other website does the opposite. So I think that's why people seem so frustrated with parallaxes is sort of maybe aligned with this is you're breaking the expectation of of how a thing should work that everybody else has sort of established as this is the way the thing will work. So don't don't scroll jack, please. Yeah, I think I mean, I don't mind parallax so much as I do scroll jacking it, scroll jacking specifically, I conflate those quite often because they're used usually used at the same time. Yeah, the scroll jacking basically is you instead of scrolling one to one, as you as you mouse down the page, it will pause on certain sections and unfold things as you continue scrolling, but stay locked on screen. And then eventually you'll get past that threshold and continue on to the next section of the page, which yeah. can be super cool. Like I've seen really, really cool examples of this visually interesting yeah i mean yeah, apple yeah. does this right but it but it feels bad most of the time in my opinion yeah but it looks cool <laughs> it looks cool it looks sexy uh if you are on a, a laptop that can display high resolution images at 60 frames per second then it works great and if you're on old hardware then screw you <laughs> yeah I wonder if there's a principle, there should be a principle, it's not in this list, but there should be a principle that's like, most people don't have the newest hardware, <laughs> right? Most people aren't on a 15-inch MacBook Pro 2018 with 8 gigs of RAM. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll call that Marshall's Law. Box Law? Is that better? Let's call it Box Law because Marshall's Law is so close to Marshall Law. Oh yeah, Marshall. <laughs> I'm declaring Marshall Law. <laughs> <laughs> on this website. If, if you assume people... When you are designing, if you assume everybody has an iPhone XS, you're you're going to be disappointed because the vast majority of people, especially people who are new to phones, whether that's what's that grandparent phone, the senior uh, phone thing, not Cricket, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no. Oh gosh, I wish <laughs> there's a user out there. <laughs> there's somebody out there who who knows what I'm talking about. But yeah. 
I think I've heard anecdotally that when you start at Facebook, and maybe you can confirm this for me, but when you start at Facebook during your orientation, someone holds up an iPhone and says, how many people use this? And people, everybody raises their hands and they hold up an Android and everybody raises their hands. And then they hold up this like shitty feature phone that has basic internet capabilities and they hold it up and go, well, guess what? This is what most people use. And this is what you need to be thinking about when you design. Uh, loosely that, they also have 2G Tuesdays where you can opt in to having the Wi-Fi on campus throttled for your device down to 2G speeds. In my experience, nobody does it because it is so incredibly frustrating, which I think is sort of proving the point. But I think there is a lot of effort there to, to bring up empathy for people who are on not only solar networks, but solar hardware as well. Um, I think this is actually kind of a nice tie-in to, to Wenny's principle, if you want to dive into that one, because this seems super related. Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of these. A lot of these are kind of grouped, but a, a couple of these relate to it. So Winnie's principle is, Wendy is one of my coworkers at YouTube. And I just heard this term recently, but I think it's a great one. I don't know that there's a, a name for it outside of this. So we just call it Winnie's principle at YouTube. But her insight, which is pretty obvious in retrospect, is don't move a tap target. No matter how obvious this is in retrospect, everybody does this and it is so bad. It's so frustrating. So if you have content that is dynamically sized and you have a tap target that is below that content and the, the content is basically not shown or of a, of a minimum height and a user is going to tap on that CTA and then all of a sudden it loads in that content and it's way taller than it thought it was going to be and now that tap target is moved and you tap on a thing that you didn't mean to do and that sucks every time. And the reason I say this is probably relevant to the network speed problem is because tap targets often move when things load in slower than the rest of the content. And I think the perfect example that you and I were talking about last time was the search on iOS. So if you if you pull down and you're searching in Spotlight, I guess they would call it Spotlight on iOS, it searches not only locally the apps on your phone and it can search your local emails and things like that, but it's also performing web searches. So if you search for like Brad, uh, it might pull up apps that have the word Brad in it or emails with Brad in it, but then it's also going to show web suggestions to search for Brad Pitt. And if you're on a slow network, those web suggestions load in slower than the locally indexed things like apps and emails. So if you're searching for an app and you type a couple letters, it will find that app first, update the icon, and as you're tapping the icon, sometimes it will grab those search results from the web, push the app suggestions down, and next thing you know, you've tapped on a web search suggestion from from the spotlight and now you're in safari you're no longer in spotlight and you got to work your way back to get back yeah. to where you're trying to be i think this is incredibly frustrating on basically any app that has search and i know twitter is notorious for this because their search just constantly reorganizes things in the results as you're typing so all this feels like uh Wendy's principle at work or perhaps not at work which leads into another thing which is this isn't on the laws of ux but this is a good thing anyways, which is, um, we call it perceived latency, but it ties into a larger thing, which is uh, actually on the site called the Doherty threshold, which is basically when you tap on something, you expect it to work within 400 milliseconds. And after that threshold, you start to think that the thing you tapped on either didn't take your tap or it's taking too long. It feels bad, right? So if you go to tap on something, you should load the new page, push the new view, whatever it happens to be, and do it immediately or within 400 milliseconds. Otherwise, 
you might run into a Winnie's principle issue where someone tries to tap the original CTA again, but now they're tapping on a new page that has loaded in right as they were pressing their finger down because they didn't know that it actually worked the first time. So one way to get around this is to use placeholders. So if you have a list and you know the size of the rows of that list, just load in blank placeholders, kind of ghost images. Skeleton screens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so something that is the right size and maintains the correct structure that shows that there is going to be stuff here. And it actually makes people think that the loading time is less, so is faster. If if there's something there, even if it hasn't loaded in yet, users will perceive it as a, a faster interaction. There's one side thing here to diverge a little bit. So React, uh, the JavaScript framework for designing and building user interfaces, they have an upcoming feature called Suspense, which is about asynchronous rendering in React. But I think that they've really embraced this principle because so I think it's actually quite common for designers and, and developers to over-optimize these skeleton screens or, or loading states. And what I mean by that is if you tap on something uh, and you're on a fast internet connection, you might notice like a flash of that skeleton or you might notice a very brief loading spinner uh, like for you know just a split second and it's because your internet's fast enough but the program said it has to show loading state in between the tap and the results and react and perhaps this is common in other languages but i'm excited about this coming to to react since it's so big they basically let you specify a threshold in your application an amount of time that you want to elapse before you show any loading indicators at all um so you might set that at 400 based on the this Doherty threshold, or you might set it a little bit lower, but the problem that it's trying to solve is to not flash loading spinners for less than that amount of time because people have that threshold of, you know, it's okay if it takes that long for something to change. All right, let's keep going. So uh, here's another one, Hicks Law. And this this ties in with Miller's Law. So Hicks Law is can be broken down to basically analysis paralysis. So the actual text of Hicks Law says, the time it takes to make a decision increases with the number and complexity of choices. So there's a really good TED Talk. Uh, I forget the guy who was the speaker, but I'll put it in the show notes. But basically, the idea was he wanted to buy jeans, and he went into this jeans store or a clothing store that had jeans, and there was an entire wall full of jeans. And back back when he was not old and yelling at his shaking his fist at clouds he you would go into a store and there'd be just a couple there's like 501 Levi, Levi's 501 and a couple other brands but like your choices were small you could easily make a decision this is the best of my my choices and since then choices have exploded there's there's so much choice regardless of what it is that you're looking at and there's a tendency that the more choice you have the less likely you are not only to make a decision, but to be happy with that decision. This just reminded me of my favorite category of restaurants are those which specialize in like one to two, maybe three things. And you go to this restaurant and the menu is basically a note card and it says you can get a burger, fries and a drink and it's going to be so damn good and you're going to be so happy with it because you don't care about anything else. This is the thing that they do and they do it really well. Sensible defaults. Sensible defaults to an extreme and those are my favorite restaurants because I hate I hate making decisions and then especially the the happiness with that decision I think is super important. It's is even if you got what you technically wanted, you feel like you've missed out on ten other opportunities and you know, maybe that's advantageous for the business to hook you into coming back. But I think that's probably a, a bad feeling way of doing that versus just making someone really happy with one good thing. Yeah, it's it's counterintuitive, right? You would expect 
I want more choices. Like, don't limit my choices. If you have more options available, give them to me. That's kind of what we would expect anyone to say. But the truth is that the more choice you have, the the less likely you are to, to make a decision and be happy with it. Did you read uh, Thinking Fast and Slow? No. I think they talked about this because what you said just stood out is people will tell you that they want more choice. Like people think that they want more choice, but the the data itself proves that people take longer to make choices or they make no choice at all. Um, so it's one of those areas where our, our brains are fallible and we think we want something that we actually don't. Yeah, people don't know what they want. This is where the whole faster horses things come thing comes from, right? Sure, yeah. I think Apple does this all the time. They're like, yeah, you think you want an audio jack in your phone, but you don't. Really what you want is you want really good wireless headphones that connect super easily and you don't have to think about the wire, right? And they're usually right. They're usually yep. right. It pisses people off. Because it is throwing in our face that you thought you wanted something that is wrong. I mean, are, are you still lamenting the, the loss of that CD drive in, in your computer? Every day. I wish I could just pop in a DVD and, and sit back and, and watch a flick. But yep. So that's Hicks Law. And that goes hand in hand with another thing, which is called Miller's Law, which there have been a bunch of studies on. But, but the, the long and short of it is uh, people can only remember seven things at a time, give or take two things, right? So between five and nine things can be held in a human's brain ram <laughs> in, in the short term without them forgetting anything. This is why numbers, uh, phone numbers are split up, even though they're seven digits are kind of split up into groups of three digits or four digits in the US and elsewhere. Similarly, there's like a sing song way of saying it out loud, dun, right? Dun, 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 dun right? Uh -huh. That's every yeah. phone number you've ever heard. So if you're going to be showing a list of choices, you should keep it small for the Hicks law thing, the analysis paralysis thing. And you should also do it so that people can remember those choices and easily uh, parse through them because of Miller's law. Speaking of giving people options and how they group those things in their mind, there's another thing called, I've always thought of it as gestalt grouping. Am I saying that right? Gestalt? Gestalt? But there's a bunch of things on the Laws of UX site that kind of fall into this general realm, which is things that are near each other and things that look similarly and things that aren't split up with white space or dividers tend to be grouped together in people's minds, which all of these things sound really obvious when you say them out loud, but, but it's good to keep in mind. So for example, this law of common region is Elements tend to be perceived into groups if they are sharing an area with a clearly defined boundary. But there's also the law of proximity, which says that objects that are near or proximate to each other tend to be grouped together. So it, this can work against you or it can work for you. And if you know that it is a thing that exists, you can use it intelligently to group like information together and separate it from other things. So, And this again goes along with another thing called law of similarity that says the human eye tends to perceive similar elements in design as a complete picture, shape, or group, even if those elements are separated. So all these things kind of tie in with, with grouping and making sure that you're using white space deliberately and you're using dividers and sectioning deliberately such that your interface has a clear hierarchy and there are child-parent relationships that tell the user exactly what this information is and don't give them a false idea about about its relationship to other information on the page. Do you have an example of somebody that either does this well or something, somebody that maybe doesn't do this well that we could point out as like, here's a counterexample? A pretty straightforward example would be settings or any sort of uh, grouped 
rows view in, in iOS. So if you go to settings, there is a row color, a cell color, which is white. Each cell has a divider between the cells. There's a cadence of the size of the cells, right? Each, each is the same height. So there's a, a cadence of rhythm down the page. And the background is a different color. So they sit on a field of light gray that sets them apart. So you can easily distinguish groups of collections of, of, of rows from the next collection of rows. Right. That's a perfect example. Yep. I can't think of a bad example off the top of my head. Maybe you can. No, but I'm sure if we come across one, we'll, we'll definitely, you, you'll notice it or you'll, you'll be confused in your day-to-day usage of that thing. You'll be like, why is this one element here? Um, There's a thing going around on Reddit a while ago. Do you remember there was a uh, somebody in Hawaii accidentally hit a button and did a, a missile launch uh-huh. test? thing Uh a while ago (laughs) yes this is a great example yeah and there's so somebody was trying to figure out how this could have happened and they mocked up an interface where basically you expect the line of text to be led read from left to right but really it's from top to bottom so instead of it being test alert and missile alert it's like test missile and i I forget exactly how it was like i'll find it for the show notes but if there's not sufficient grouping of those words you could, oh, it's the uh, don't open dead inside or don't dead open inside thing. It's actually a subreddit from Walking Dead. So in the in the first episode of The Walking Dead, there in the hospital where Rick is trying to get out, there is a set of double doors, spray painted words on them. And on the left door, it says don't above and open below. And on the right door, it says dead above and inside below. So on the left door, it says don't open. <laughs> and on the right door, it says dead inside, right? Don't open these doors. There's dead inside. But when you read it like a normal human being, you read it <laughs> top left, top right, bottom left, bottom right, which then says don't dead open inside, mm-hmm. um, which makes no sense. And there's an entire subreddit dedicated to people doing this poorly uh, or laying out signs poorly uh, that don't read the way they were intended to be read. That is a perfect example. Well done. So yeah, be be careful with your grouping. Be careful with your right, white space. And you should use white space. I think there's a lot of negativity around the concept of white space, especially if you ever look at, at websites that are mostly used in Asia. They fucking hate white space. Everything is text everywhere. Letters everywhere, yeah. Yeah, there's just content everywhere. And it's really hard to tell what the hell's going on. I think it's a cultural thing and it's what they expect. But if you're designing for a Western audience, typically you'll want to use liberal amounts of white space to hem your content in and maintain this this grouping structure. Yeah, so that's gestalt grouping and a bunch of things associated with that. So now we're going to get away from the laws a little bit, but there's a couple things that I want to talk about that go into crappy design slash asshole design. So uh, the first thing is this word that you've probably heard before, but maybe it hasn't been clear what it is, and, and that is affordances. I know for a fact that this word doesn't exist in every language. It's a pretty unique English word. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, maybe I was talking to Rafa or I was talking to maybe a, a German friend or somebody, but they, they they were like, there's no word for this. Like this doesn't this doesn't exist in our language. But but the concept is is pretty clear, which is the function of a thing should be reflected in the shape of the thing. Right? So here's a good example, uh, a toggle switch, right? And on iOS or on Android, the, the toggle switch is, is a button that sits in a track that shows that it can be, uh, that it has like kind of a range of movement to the left or to the right. So 
if you see this little circle and it has some space to the right inside of a container that is shaped with like a pill with the circle edges, everything lines up nicely. It pretty much implies that this circle inside can slide over to the right or slide over to the left. Another good example is in the real world would be uh, doors. So on a door that can be pushed from one side only and pulled from one side only, you put a plate on the side for pushing so that there's there's no handle or anything because a handle means pull, right? And on the, on the pull side, you put, put a handle or some sort of um, bar that implies that th this thing can be grabbed and pulled. This is like the... the the most classic Don Norman uh, design of everyday things example. Right? Yeah. Norman, Norman doors. Is that what Norman they're called? Doors. Yeah. 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 You're right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a YouTube video I can link to in the, in the show notes where I, I forget it was some sort of office for like a, a web company or something. I forget exactly what it was, but they have this conference room that has uh, handles on both sides and people fuck it up constantly. They're pushing when they should be pulling and vice versa. And so they, they set up shop outside of this conference door and we're asking passers-by coworkers, <laughs> do you ever have troubles opening or closing this door? Uh, to a one of them, every, everyone said yes, absolutely, because there's pull handles on both sides. Mm -hmm. So you're 50% of the time you're going to do the wrong thing. And the way they fixed it, I mean, you can really easily just say push or pull. You know, you can write text on there and that, that clears things up. But the affordance of the interaction method with the door is a greater indication because like if this thing has one of those push bars, uh, those horizontal push bars, like there's no way I'm pulling this door, right? Right. And it, and if it has a, a paddle handle, like I know it needs to be turned because it's a it's a paddle, right? I would argue even against having a, a label there just from an international perspective. Like, you know, you've you, you've traveled and you've read, read signs on doors that you don't understand. And you hope that you don't look like an idiot in a foreign country because their doors are designed not stupidly yeah i mean if you're doing your job right like you shouldn't need words like it should be self-evident so how does this relate to interface design well like i said with the toggle switch it should predict its own behavior it should telegraph its own behavior so here's a good example like the the picker ui in ios it has a 3d effect where it kind of looks like a, a cylindrical dial and the items above the center item either angle off into the distance above or below and that implies that you can spin this thing. It's a spinny picker. And I think that's a good example. Can you think of any other ones? No, but I was going to call out that I think this most often gets confused with signifiers, which I think this is all like sort of parroting Don Norman's book. And then certainly this has been written about a lot. But I think people often say affordances when they mean signifiers and, and vice versa. So like the affordance like you said, is the shape of the thing or the like physical representation of the thing indicating the way it works. And a signifier would be like the label that you put on the door. So if the, the label says push, that's not an affordance, that's a signifier, right? Yeah, yeah. Or like the fact that a button exists on a screen, that's not an affordance that a thing can be done. It's a signifier that a thing can be done. So for example, like an X on a view is a signifier that the view can be closed. It's not an affordance of the closability of that view. Yeah, some people call that a close affordance, yeah. Yeah, it's not. I think I think the, the close affordance would probably be like the sheets metaphor that iOS uses quite often, like in Apple Music, where a sheet reaches up from the bottom to top of the screen, but doesn't quite make it all the way. So you can see some content peeking behind just a few dips worth. Like It's got rounded corners to show that it, right. you know, it, it's, a, it's a page. It's yeah. got a little handle at the top that shows you can drag it down. The handle, certainly. Right. Yeah. That's an affordance. Yeah, I think I, I've probably used this word incorrectly before. Right? Oh, that's it, it's very, very common to mix these up. 
And I think most people know what you mean, so it's not worth being a pedantic asshole and correcting people if you know what they were going for. But but it is a good concept to have in mind when you're designing yes. a pattern. Like, make sure you're using the right affordance. If this thing only has a few different states, maybe it's better to use a segmented controller instead of a slider, or you know, maybe it's better to use a, a toggle instead of a, a changing icon. Right? Yeah. There's a whole other conversation about predictive versus instructive icons. Like, so for example, mute. You're on a phone call and there's a microphone with a, a diagonal line through it. And okay, does that mean that I am muted? Or does that mean that when I tap on this, it will mute? And when I tap on it, does the slash through it go away and it becomes a normal microphone? So like, is this button describing my current state or the state that will exist once I tap on it? I think that is an argument that will never be solved. Like, I think you just need to get away from that in general because it's super confusing. Like, is this saying what I'm doing right now or what I will be doing when I tap on it? That's why I think the, the toggle is in checkbox in general is a, a lot of times underutilized. So a, a toggle, we could basically call it a checkbox, right? There's an on off state. So if there's a Boolean thing, and, and I think this gets very confusing for segmented controls on iOS, if there's two things, it's like, is the thing with the color behind it emphasized or is it de-emphasized? Is the thing with the white background like matching the, the background of the page, does that mean that it's active? Mm -hmm. Is it forward or is it dimmed? Yeah. Yeah. So most Boolean things, just the most obvious thing you can do is just make it a checkbox or if you're on iOS, just make it a, a toggle. Yeah. And another, another thing going towards the idea of like use the right affordance is like a multi-select. So if you're, if you have a list of things and many can be selected at once, use checkboxes, right? That's, yep. that's what you do. But if it's a single select with multiple options, use radio buttons. Right. And using radio buttons is an indication to the user that they've seen this pattern before. Only one can be selected when they tap on a different one. The one that they had selected before deselects, and now this one is the active one, right? So make sure as you're designing new interfaces, try to use existing patterns because of Jacob's Law. But uh, if you need to use new patterns, try to make sure that their affordance is appropriate for their function. Perfectly said. I think that's a pretty good pretty good list. We could probably do more. And if you have ones that you like and that, that we didn't mention here, please please tweet them to us. We're at Design Details FM on Twitter. We read all that stuff and we will be sure to include it in the follow-up for next episode. But I, I thought this was a pretty good top-level list of things that you should keep in mind when you're designing interfaces. Like if you if you do all these things right, you're you'll be on a much easier path to success. Yeah, I also would love to hear more anecdotal rule of thumb experiences from people that have been working in the industry for a while, like kind of this Wendy's principle, which is just your coworker at YouTube. I, I like hearing those kinds of things where somebody's just dealt with this problem so much they've invented their own rule around it. So if you know of that, you should tweet at us. Um, we'd like to read it and share it. Let's get on to some cool things. Cool. Uh, last week, I, I mentioned StockX and we talked about shoes for a little bit. Shoes. Shoes. So the most recent pair of shoes that I bought is a is a pair of shoes that came out very recently. It's from uh, a company you may have heard of called Nike, and uh, huh. it is a it is a brand that Nike makes uh, called Air Jordan. I'm not sure if you've heard of this before. It's pretty esoteric, but so I bought a new a new pair of Jordans. Uh, the new the new pair of Jordans, the the uh, 33s. There have been 33 different models of Air Jordans, if you can believe that. And so the the 33s are. Very, very fucking cool. And they have the thing I want to call out is their lacing system. 
So they're a basketball shoe. So they're made specifically for basketball players. And, and one of the things about basketball players is they need to go from having their shoes very tight and locked down while they're on the court so that they don't roll their ankle or anything negative happen. It needs to be basically an extension of your foot. But when you are not playing, when you're sitting on the bench waiting to go in, you don't want your shoes really tight because it hurts your feet. So you need to loosen them up. And with typical laces, with, with traditional laces, you have to untie and retie your shoes frequently, and that's not conducive to quick substitutions on, on the court. So the cool thing about these shoes is they have this special lacing system. I think it's called the flight system or something. I'll put it in the show notes. I'll put a video so you can see what I'm talking about. But basically it uses a, a parachute cord that is zigzagged across the, the top of the foot, and it connects to a device that is featured on the sole of the foot, on the outsole, on the bottom of the shoe. It's kind of like a ratchet system that when you pull on this elastic cord on the top of the shoe, it pulls this uh, parachute cord tight and advances the mechanism in the bottom of the shoe that click, 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 and holds your tightening at the level that you, you choose to do it. It has up to 20 clicks, and I'll do it right here so you can kind of hear it. Listen. Did you hear that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's me pulling this strap across the top. It's got a nice elastic thing, and it has a big tab on it that says pull. Go figure. <laughs> Going back to the Normandors or whatever they're called. And then next to the strap, uh, coming out of it, is this yellow and black striped loop with uh, another little label that says eject. And when you pull <laughs> this, when you pull this loop, it loosens that ratchet system, and now you can pull the parachute cord looser and it will it will reduce whatever tightening you've done there's also like a side strap to lock down the heel but yeah this flight system is super cool i think it looks really rad and i just think it's a really cool evolution of a thing that is so quotidian and mundane as laces they're, they're still innovating and coming up with new ideas in a realm that has pretty much been stale you know aside from minor differences for decades right and they're great looking as well it reminds me a lot of upgrading from laced snowboard boots to the the ratchet sort of they're like cable boots where you just twist the knob to tighten them and loosen them oh yeah yeah, yeah totally night and day experience of of getting your gear on for snowboarding and it is just those little things that change the experience and make it really nice and again the affordances are perfect right like the the big strap along the top says pull and it has elastic and it looks like you want to get your whole hand under there and pull up and then the little eject loop you stick, you know, you get a finger hooked in there and, and pull on it. Like it's pretty straightforward. It doesn't even need the signifiers of pull and eject. Like you could probably figure it out yourself, no problem. What's your cool thing? So we relaunched the Spec FM website a couple weeks ago and we made it open source. Simultaneously, my personal website crashed some bad connection to a database and I just couldn't be bothered to fix it. So this week I went to the Spec FM repository, I clicked fork and I swapped out some content and I brought my personal site back up. And for people who don't know that this podcast originally was a, a blog called Design Details. And so those are all revived now. And I really wanted to do this a few weeks ago when we talked about Path because I have a, a blog post about Path and it has videos of all the cool little design details that existed in Path at that point in time. And actually a lot of these posts now are several years old. So you can get sort of this snapshot in time of things like Facebook Paper or Secret or Sunrise, like these apps that don't exist anymore. I think I have like a super old version of Foursquare. I have Goala. I don't have Goala, but I have 
I did Instagram several versions ago before they went all white. So you can see what Instagram used to look like when it had the black tab bar and the blue header. Um, so anyways, those those blog posts are all live. I hopefully made the site fun. I, I forked SpecFM so that I could have that sort of like global podcast player I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Um, so you can listen to this while you read those posts. So that's uh, that's my self-plug. Uh, hopefully it's a cool thing to other people besides just me. I think one of the interesting things about working on apps or sites, basically any any UI, is that it is 100% ephemeral. The thing you're creating will exist for a short amount of time until it's updated and looks different. And then whatever state it was in before is lost into the ether. It is gone forever. And unless someone documents it, as you have done, it only exists in the minds of the users who had access to it at the time. Yeah, that's why I think the Internet Archive project is so important. And I really wish that existed for apps. Yeah, but it doesn't. So hopefully people will be taking screenshots and videos like these along the way. And in the future, we'll be able to have some good nostalgia moments of remembering old UI. But until then, uh, we'll just have a few snapshots here and there. Mm hmm. Cool. Cool things, Brian. Cool things indeed. On that note, let's wrap up. Thank you so much to Drew and Sarah, our producers and editors uh, and all around uh, curators of the words that we say on the show. So thank you, Sarah and Drew, for making us sound smarter than we are, which we say every week, but consistently remains true. So thank you. Thank you to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, let us know. We're on Twitter at DesignDetailsFM. If you want more podcasts for your ears, you can go to spec.fm. We have more podcasts for designers and developers just like you. If you're looking for a job, we have a job board. It's at spec.fm slash jobs. And if your company is hiring, uh, we would love to help get those listings in front of people who listen to these shows. So again, that's at spec.fm slash jobs. Uh, otherwise, uh, hit us up on Twitter, Design Details FM, or come join us in our Spectrum community at spectrum.chat slash specfm. Yeah, I hope this episode made up for some of the non-designy stuff we've been talking about recently. And this was an hour of only designy things. So yeah, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully you're Everyone sated. got it out of their system. Yeah. <laughs> got it into their system. Yeah. Uh, and good job to uh, John from uh, lawsofux.com. Yeah, thanks again to John for curating this. We'll have links to his Twitter in the, the show notes. It's definitely a cool website mm-hmm. to check out. So Yeah, it's pretty too. All right, that's it. Cool. All right. Um, until next week, Marshall. Bye. I was going to ask if you are a No Limit soldier, Brian. I don't know that reference. That's a Master P reference from back in the early 2000s. Never mind. Continue. Who boy. Don't know who Master P is. Mm-hmm. Don't know when the 2000s were. Cool. What? Make him say, uh, uh, <laughs> huh? na, 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 na. You know that song? <laughs> no. Uh, okay. Never mind. Continue. <laughs> cool.